0: A new defence pact against the growing influence of China receives a furious response. America ponders whether a top general committed treason in an attempt to save it from Donald Trump. And there are big political changes in the UK, but will they really deliver the bit that actually matters? My name is Malan Baker. This is the Malan Baker Show. The U.S., Britain, and Australia announced a new defense pact this week to help equip Australia with nuclear-powered submarines in the face of an increasingly provocative China. The initiative was launched by President Biden, Boris Johnson, and Scott Morrison with a joint statement that said, "This we will leverage expertise from the United States and the United Kingdom, building on the two countries' submarine programs, to bring an Australian capability into service at the earliest achievable date." The submarines will be nuclear powered, not nuclear armed. In addition to the focus on submarines, they also promise to boost cooperation in areas such as cyber capabilities, applied artificial intelligence. No surprise there if you watch my deep dive video on AI on Monday. Quantum technologies and other undersea capabilities, by which I'm guessing they probably mean seagoing drone technology. Now the word China wasn't actually mentioned at the launch, but the context wasn't exactly a secret. Growing antagonism between China and Australia, the US and the UK, has been A prominent feature in the last couple of years, China has been investing billions in advancing its navy at a rapid pace, more than trebling it in size in the last two decades. And it's becoming more aggressive in how it projects that naval power. And not just close to home. Earlier this week it was reported that China had sent a task force of warships to patrol US waters off Alaska. The task force included two guided missile destroyers along with a surveillance ship. China also has a freeze on high-level diplomatic talks with Australia Reflecting the deterioration in relations there since Australia called for an independent investigation into the origins of COVID-19. Now, the Chinese embassy in Washington responded to the launch by saying that countries should shake off their Cold War mentality and ideological prejudice. The Global Times's editor-in-chief, Hu Jin, tweeted this. Hopefully when Chinese warships pass through the Caribbean Sea or show up near Hawaii and Guam one day, the US will uphold the same standard of freedom of navigation. That day will come soon. The US Navy responded to the tweet saying that they had upheld the standards of freedom of navigation longer than the PLA Navy has existed. The next Cold War will be hosted on Twitter, it seems. Also not best pleased was the government of France, which previously had a $90 billion contract to build diesel-powered submarines for Australia. France's foreign ministry complained that the decision to switch to US nuclear submarines was contrary to the letter and the spirit of the cooperation that prevailed between France and Australia. Morrison had previously had talks with French President Macron over concerns over delays to the existing project that had meant that submarines wouldn't be delivered until 2030. Scott Morrison said that he understood the disappointment in France, but said this, but as a prime minister, I must make decisions that are in Australia's national security. I know that France would do the same, and I know ultimately that will be understood. Well, ultimately maybe, in the short term, not so much. French Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian said this, it's really a stab in the back. We had established a relationship of trust with Australia. This trust has been betrayed. This unilateral, brutal, unpredictable decision is a lot like what Mr Trump did. He added that the only difference is that American disregard for allies is now expressed through press conferences rather than through tweets. What wasn't stated was that although no doubt the loss of a $90 billion contract hurt the most probably France felt the sting a little bit more purely on account of the UK being involved in the new arrangement given relations between the UK and France right now. Might have added an edge as well to the European Union's complaints that it hadn't been given prior notice of the new alliance. And indeed, Biden's team gave the UK a boost in talking up its post-Brexit positioning. One senior US official is quoted as saying, Great Britain is very focused on the concept of global Britain and their tilt is about engaging much more deeply with the Indo-Pacific, and this is a down payment on that effort. The EU was probably discomforted because the announcement came just hours before it launched its own strategy for the Indo-Pacific, which, in contrast, was described by Politico as woolly. The Biden administration is clearly lining up behind Australia in the ways that matter, but there's no doubt that some of the Australian media were also somewhat distracted by the fact that the president seemed to forget Scott Morrison's name in the middle of the presentation, although he did quickly recover a few seconds later. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Thank you very much, pal. Appreciate it, Mr. Prime Minister. I am uh, honoured today to be joined by two of America's closest allies, Australia and the United Kingdom to launch a new phase of the trilateral security cooperation among our countries. As Prime Minister Morrison and Prime Minister Johnson said, I want to thank you for this partnership. Meanwhile, New Zealand's Jacinda Ardern made her own contribution by noting that Australia's new nuclear-powered submarines would be banned from New Zealand waters. New Zealand has held a nuclear-free position since the 1980s and has no intention of relaxing that position on anyone's account. But then New Zealand has been trying to maintain good relations with China, showing reluctance to sign joint statements with Australia, the UK, US and Canada, the so-called Five Eyes Alliance, that have criticised China on human rights crackdowns in Hong Kong. The real importance of this moment is that following the events of Afghanistan, which China described as reflecting weakening US resolve to engage with supporting allies, this is a strong signal designed to push the other way. Hence China's apoplectic response to what's practically a relatively minor increase in naval capacity in the region. And hence also the question from former Prime Minister Theresa May to Boris Johnson yesterday in Parliament, where she asked... Whether this meant that if China invaded Taiwan, would Britain be dragged with the US into a war with China? The way that question is framed is worthy of note. Being dragged in rather than making a stand. Expect that to be a focus of debate for the period to come. What seems unlikely to happen from all of this is phone calls from top generals in the Australian Navy to let China know that they're going to be taking part in action against them. But it does seem that such calls may have been made by the top general in the United States in the dying days of the Trump presidency. We'll get to that and some of the rest of the week's news in just a minute. But first, in recent years, we've heard about little else than the global climate, how it is likely to change in the future and what that might mean for life on the planet. Well, this planet has been around for about four and a half billion years. And it's seen some pretty dramatic changes in the climate during that time. What can we learn from the climate history of the planet? What were the big changes of the distant past? What impact did they have? And what do we know about what caused those changes? Sometimes people dip into those historical records just to make some kind of point. But let's go in without preconceptions, to see what comes out of it. What can we learn from the paleoclimatic history of the world? That video will be going live on this channel, 7pm UK time next Monday. Join me for that. General Mark Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, was reported in a forthcoming book by Bob Woodward to have taken steps In fear that post-election, Donald Trump's mental state was deteriorating rapidly and that could lead to him going rogue and attempting to launch a nuclear strike on China. At the time of shooting this, Milley hadn't responded directly to the claims. What's said in a book isn't necessarily exactly what happened, but if what's reported is indeed true, it does reflect an extraordinary new indicator of just how far off the rails of normal governance the US has gone. It wasn't just that Milley took steps to ensure that he would be included in the loop should any instructions related to the use of nuclear weapons be given, which I think would be defensible, if controversial. I mean controversial because the civilian control of the military is a fundamental part of the system. But I do think if there are genuine fears of a leader in a compromised mental state, there have to be some institutional measures to make sure nothing truly awful happens as a consequence. But reportedly that also included merely phoning the head of China's People's Liberation Army to reassure him that there was not an attack forthcoming and to promise that he would tell him in advance if any such attack was planned. Did such calls actually happen? Well, Colonel Dave Butler, a spokesman for Millie, defended the calls as vital to improving mutual understanding of US national security interests, reducing tensions, providing clarity, and avoiding unintended consequences or conflict. There was no denial in there of the exact nature of the cause, so that does seem to be confirmation that it happened more or less as reported. If that's the case, a number of critics, not least of course former President Trump himself, are saying with some justification that that would count as treason. And that's not even the most remarkable thing. I mean it would be an egregious error but you could understand if a senior decision maker overreacted in the heat of a moment and did what he thought would be best and in so doing made a catastrophic error of judgment. Consequences would have to follow that error of judgment but that would be the system correcting itself. But in polarised America What's actually happening in the early stages of all of this is that, yes, Republicans are sounding the alarm, but largely, Democrats and their supporters seem happy to justify the reported actions. Joe Biden said that he had great confidence in General Milley. General Wesley Clark, former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, said that Milley had done the right thing. However, criticism wasn't wholly exclusive to Trump defenders. Retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who testified against Trump, during his first impeachment hearings, said that if the reports were true, General Milley must resign. He usurped civilian authority, broke chain of command and violated the sacrosanct principle of civilian control over the military. For the record, there's plenty of evidence of Trump's difficult emotional and mental state immediately after the election But I've not seen any evidence whatsoever to suggest that he was contemplating a strike on China, whether nuclear or otherwise. Needless to say, those that have been talking for years about the existence of the so-called deep state with top officials acting routinely to preserve an approach to government and power that subverts democratic governance, they have been pointing at this as a standout example of that principle in practice. If China's feeling put upon, by Australia, the US and the UK, it can at least draw some comfort from its progress on fourth generation nuclear power. This month it's about to activate a thorium molten salt reactor which should be giving cheaper and safer nuclear power. The test reactor is small, just a capacity of two megawatts, which could power up to a thousand homes. But if a test period is successful, China intends to develop a series of small molten salt reactors, each with a capacity of 100 megawatts. Because molten salt reactors don't need water for cooling, they can be built in dry regions. And they're seen as one of the tools for achieving Xi Jinping's goals of net zero by 2060. It's a long way to go. By 2030, the promised peak year for fossil fuel emissions, China will have 1,300 gigawatts of capacity in coal power. But equally as important will be if China can perfect fourth generation nuclear technology, it will be well placed to sell some of that technology around the world, particularly since thorium molten salt reactors can't be used to create weapons-grade nuclear materials. A strong point in their favour. It's an opportunity for Beijing, given that Western countries continue to drag their feet and prevaricate about nuclear technology, rather giving the lead away. So, for instance, in Germany, the CDU's candidate to replace Angela Merkel, Armin Laschet, did get around to reflecting that it perhaps had not been the best move for Germany to panic after the Fukushima accident and decide to shut down nuclear power stations well before the coal power stations. That's not the same as promising a return to nuclear power should he be elected, of course, which seems beyond the politically possible in Germany at the moment. Well, right now, there's something of an energy squeeze across Europe as natural gas prices have peaked as economies get moving again post-COVID. And also, Europe has seen a run of low wind weather. Might be a good time to revisit some of those discussions about what makes for reliable baseload power. Now, in the UK, there have been political changes afoot and dramatic reversals on COVID policy. We will get to that and the final thought for the week in just a minute. But first, it's time for another Q&A video. If you would like me to consider your question for discussion, please add it in the comments below this video, preceded by the word QUESTION in all caps, so that even I can't miss it. Patreon supporters get priority because they directly help to make these videos happen of course so the more interesting you make your question to the wider audience the more likely it will break through and I'll be able to use it. Put your comments below until the end of Monday at which point any new ones will be held over to next time and then join me for that discussion going live on this channel 7pm UK time next Wednesday. See you then. In the UK, the political reporters have all been rather distracted by one of those occasional events that they obsess over. A government reshuffle. Various people have been sacked. Various people have been promoted. It seems like the government has been going out of its way to promote and bring in more women to get more balanced representation. One environmental journalist tweeted that it was looking like a pretty good reshuffle for the net zero agenda. Which I think is just weird because, of course, the government's going to put people in departments who are committed to implementing the government's policy for those departments. That doesn't seem to be news. The only interesting question out of all of this is, are the ministers in position, at the end of this process, more competent to execute what needs to be done over the coming period. Right now, never mind your ideology, never mind your diversity score and your good intentions. There is an ongoing competency gap in government as well as a leadership gap. A period of competent government would be good. One that didn't constantly lurch from one position to the opposite position in relation to Covid. So on vaccine passports, for instance, just a few weeks ago, Boris Johnson said very definitively, very authoritatively, that vaccine passports would be required for venues like nightclubs and so on later in September. But as we know, when government ministers say things definitively and authoritatively, what they're really saying is, blah, blah. So it transpired. This week we were told by the health secretary that vaccine passports for nightclubs would now not go ahead. Sajid Javi told the BBC we shouldn't be doing things for the sake of it. Which is an excellent principle. Except I suspect that what he really meant was No sooner had he spoken than the Prime Minister's office stressed that the vaccine passport plan would be kept in reserve in case it was needed for autumn or winter. He revealed his plan A, which involves booster jabs and vaccination for older children, and plan B, with measures short of lockdown, such as social distancing and masking, that will only be resorted to if the NHS is at risk of being overwhelmed. In other words, yep, you guessed it. Promises have become worthless. Actions have been divorced from any meaningful rationale. Right now, care workers have hit the deadline where they would need to get a first vaccine shot. In order to meet the government's date it says that after 11th of November they will not be able to remain employed in the care sector unless they are double vaccinated. Really? I mean the care homes are already hit by chronic worker shortages and up to 70,000 care home workers are currently not vaccinated which must be the result of choice because the opportunity has been there for some time by now. So you're really going to lay waste to this rather important sector or is it just going to be yet another u-turn coming after lots of damage has been done because of the threatened policy significant numbers of staff having found themselves alternative jobs without waiting around to be sacked now is it necessarily a bad idea that people dealing with the most vulnerable people should be vaccinated well no you can certainly make the case i mean you can make the counter case as well by the way but is this the way to bring it in With the sector in the state that it's in? Which will bring the most suffering to the mostly vaccinated people in care homes? The occasional breakthrough cases of COVID? Or having a serious shortfall of staff who are able to help them on a day-to-day basis? So fine, Boris, well done on your reshuffle. You made the political journalists very happy. Now, some basic competence in running the country would be kind of good. Maybe start by combing your bloody hair looking like a prime minister, you know, just as a statement of intent. So anyway, that's what's been distracting politicos in the UK. In the US, it's been mostly about a left-wing woman wearing a dress with a left-wing slogan on it at an event for mostly left-leaning A-list celebrities, which is a thing on a slow news day, I suppose. It's also been about a Democrat governor winning a vote to keep a Democrat governor in a state that is heavily Democrat-leaning. This apparently was a victory against Trump, although Trump wasn't standing. And it was really about whether Gavin Newsom could get the voters past his series of missteps and gaffes over the last year that led to the recall vote happening in the first place. Now, it wasn't an encouraging sign that Larry Elder, the Republican frontrunner as the alternative if Newsom had lost the vote, immediately went into the stolen election narrative as polling day approached. Losing candidates, complaining about election fraud when they lose, even in a state when the odds are heavily against them without any fraud happening whatsoever – It erodes trust in democratic systems, it doesn't win the support of independent voters. Elder did at least concede defeat, but given the scale of the vote, it would have been pretty ridiculous to do anything else. Talking about fraud in the first place, in that situation, was an own goal. Seems to me to be it's one that Republicans are likely to keep scoring against themselves for some time to come. Which Democrats will be happy about, to be honest. They want to associate their opponents with Trump because the vision of Trump gets their voters out. And nothing associates you with Trump more than following the big lie playbook. Meanwhile having touched earlier on vaccine passports it's worth noting quickly that Italy has made vaccine passports compulsory for all state and private employees with the unvaccinated to be suspended without pay until they cave in. Now it's true that the Italian pass is also available temporarily for those that have recently recovered from Covid-19 or those that tested negative with a rapid test in which the latter case for pass expires after 48 hours which is no good really for an ongoing employment situation. Italy's public administration minister said that the measure had not been seen elsewhere in Europe, no kidding, and put Italy on the front line against Covid. In the early stages of a pandemic it was Italy's embrace of China's authoritarian lockdown policies that first made democratic governments realise that such an option was even open to them and most of them then followed suit. I'm guessing that rather fewer are going to be tempted to follow them on this particular draconian initiative. Time will tell. Facebook knows that Instagram harms girls, according to leaked internal research. A study carried out focus groups in which teenage girls in the US and the UK blamed Instagram for making them feel anxious and depressed. One slide published by the Wall Street Journal said that 32% of teenage girls had said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. Comparisons on Instagram can change how young women view and describe themselves. And another of the slides said this. Teens blame Instagram for increases in the rate of anxiety and depression. This reaction was unprompted and consistent across all groups. This went as far as feeding into suicidal thoughts. 13% of British youngsters and 6% of Americans traced the urge to kill themselves to Instagram. It does seem to be Instagram specifically that is at fault with its encouragement of social comparison with others based on looks and appearances of people living the ideal lifestyle. It's all part of how we're being changed by the context of the online world within which we now live. After all, it's now a big part, for instance, of a world of dating. When I was in my 20s, you got together with people you met, you know, in real life. And there were many factors that affected how people were attracted to each other or not. Now in the swipe left, swipe right world, looks is all people have got to go on. The standard of attractiveness has become so distorted by this shallow surface level social media facade that even good looking people don't think they measure up because they're comparing themselves to others and those others are all using filters and pretending. You could look at all of this and conclude that it has become generally destructive of the rather sound human values that we should not be so quick to throw overboard. I mean, it used to be that people would be under pressure to be good people, to be faithful to their friends, to do something good for their communities. Now we're in this world of visuals, we're in a world of public virtue signalling, where it's all become performative and it's all for show. And the fact that you can find communities of people like you online hasn't always helped, because it's too easy to end up in communities of a similarly aggrieved, encouraging you to make your mutual grievance a substantive part of your identity, for instance the incels community. Whereas in the offline world you'd be surrounded by people whose presence would tend to soften and help you over that grievance. And young people especially have traditionally been socialized by the moderating effect of an offline community. The online community has showed that it fails to achieve that same effect. The online world is a fantastic increase in reach. I mean I couldn't do without it. I appreciate it as much as anybody. Let's remember to create relationships of substance and indeed to be part of a world of substance, not just the ones of surface appearance. Doesn't mean that you don't spend part of your life online. It's just that the most important part is the part that you spend offline. All right. Last week I mentioned that I'd noticed that my previous videos on Afghanistan had been demonetized. I said I would appeal. I appealed and they were restored. But then I looked back and I found more. Two videos on ivermectin were demonetized. Two videos on the Wuhan lab leak theory had been demonetized. Now none of those videos had had any problems when they were first published quietly after the event they've been hit by the algorithm that now seems to be going back to old content to see, you know, if it's changed its mind about stuff. It's just a constant reminder of how the attempt to talk independently about the issues of the moment, even when you are committed to staying close to the evidence, avoiding all the conspiracy stuff, it's made difficult. You're constantly left wondering what's going to get you into trouble next week. And you're constantly also having to resist the temptation to take the easy route to self-censor, to not go onto the topics that are going to be seen as problematic. Well, as you know, I've said that I won't self-censor here. And that's made possible because of the people who support this channel on Patreon. Without that support, really, I couldn't spend the time making the content that I do. And I would have to make more of the easy content likely to get that wider audience, less of the content that YouTube will demonetize and refuse to promote to those wider audiences. If you would like to add your support for the independent, fact-focused and non-ideological content that I aim to produce here, please head on over to patreon.com forward slash It is always appreciated. Either way, have a great week. My name is Malla Baker, this is the Mallon Baker Show. Thanks for watching this video. If you liked it, please share with anyone else you think would also enjoy it. Word of mouth is really important to us. And if you've not subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? As the saying goes, that subscribe button won't smash itself.